Today, we will celebrate Palm Sunday a week ahead of a usual lantern schedule. The official Palm Sunday is next week, but I decide to reflect on triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem today because there are too many important lessons for us that happened during the Passion Week. By the way, starting tomorrow, this Monday, we will also meditate the Passion Week material a week earlier in our daily breath. Daily breath is our Zoom-based morning devotional at 7 a.m. And for the actual Passion Week, I'm going to try something new, and that's the secret, by the way. And I'm going to work hard this week to prepare the new Passion Week meditation. So please pray for me that this new attempt to contemplate on the suffering, redemptive suffering of Christ will bear some fruit. Now, let us see Jesus arriving in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. Our Lord's last journey to Jerusalem began 10 chapters ago. In Luke chapter 9, verse 59 says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Immediately after that, Jesus was rejected by Samaritan village. And do you remember James and John wanted to call fire from heaven to destroy these Samaritans? And Jesus rebuked them and simply went on to the next village. That event was a very programmatic. It was a prelude to what would happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem, Jesus also once again rejected, this time deadly. Yet Jesus didn't take revenge on those enemies who killed him. But he followed God all the way to Easter Day, the empty you know, tomb. Amen. Now, with that, let's read our scripture today. Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 44, responsively. Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. As he approached the best page and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked him, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their clocks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their clocks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount Olive, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the, all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I'll tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As they approached Jerusalem, so the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring peace, 
but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, and you and, your chil- and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Actually, better word than God's coming would be God's visitation. God's visitation. It was a very special word. Anyway, Jesus' last visit to Jerusalem begs us a question. Do we know when was the saddest moment in Jesus' life? What makes Jesus so sad? Think about when Jesus was and could have been very sad. Some people might say, obviously, that's when he was crucified. Though crucifixion was very difficult and absolutely painful, Jesus was ready for the day for a long time. He handled the crucifixion incredibly with the courage and the compassion. How about the Gethsemane, where Luke tells us that Jesus' blood dropped like a blood. It was, again, very difficult and heavier than we can ever imagine, but not so sad. How about the tomb of Lazarus? The Gospel of John said Jesus wept. When you take a John discipleship one, actually you will know more about Jesus weeping, and it was actually temporary and was relieved. He was relieved when Mary and Martha discovered the true resurrection faith. So, the saddest and the most grieving time for Jesus was when he came to Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. That's why I titled today's sermon, Weeping King. Weeping King. As you find out what made Jesus so sad to weep, let us pray that today's passage lead us to repent things that still sadden our Lord and much more rededicate our lives to His redeeming love. So for that, we'll look at the story with the three angles. So first we're going to look at the thrills of disciples, thrills of disciples, Second is the terrors of the Pharisees, and the third is the tears of Jesus. So disciples, you know, thrill, Pharisees' terrors, and the Jesus' tears. First, disciples of Jesus was very thrilled about Jesus entering Jerusalem. Luke gave us the details of Jesus' arrival and the following actions. Jesus sent two of his disciples to fetch a colt of a donkey that no one has ridden. He instructed them that if an owner asks why, simply tell them the Lord needs it. That's how exactly two disciples brought a donkey to Jesus later. Now, biblical scholars have two interpretations on this. First, donkey was prearranged by Jesus, just like a Lord made a prior arrangement for place for his last supper with the disciples later. Second, second interpretation is that Jesus, in his omniscience, knew where the donkey was and simply knew the owners would allow it. So which interpretation do you see here? While some people say that the, that the repeated phrase, the Lord needs it, as a, some kind of secret code or prearranged signal, I think the later letter was more probable and natural. By the way, 
I changed my opinion on this. Uh, I used to hold the first view. To now, I'm holding the second view. Why? Listen to me. What Jesus requested, to, uh, requested of a donkey owner was similar to Roman practice of a requisitioning. requisitioning. Back then, Roman soldiers often required people to perform sort of a man, manual, manual, manual labors or tasks for them. A good example of a Roman requisition that we see later was a Simon of a Cyrene who was ordered to take a Jesus cross instead of Jesus. In the Luke chapter 23, verse 26 says, As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from country. He was a pilgrim to Jerusalem temple for Passover. And the Roman soldiers put a cross on him, and they made him carry the cross for behind Jesus. So as a commentator said, this makes a much better sense here, that Jesus acting like a messianic king, the Lord of Old Testament, and this is a divine, he's a divine foreknowledge taking control of an event. This control is uh, proved when disciples arrive at the village, found everything just as he told them. Again, this is evidence of his foreknowledge rather than prior arrangement. So Luke takes the time to show in detail the instruction came to pass perfectly, and the owners of a cult complied with the Jesus command to requisition the animal. Everything Jesus commanded came to be true. And through that, Luke wanted to show or display Jesus' authority working here. Now, by the way, why did Jesus ask for donkey, not a stallion? Again, Jesus was fulfilling messianic prophecy of Zechariah. Prophet Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verse 9 said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout and daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. According to Prophet Zechariah, 500 years before Christ, he said when the Messiah comes, he will be gentle and humble king, riding not on the war horse-like stallion, but an ordinary common donkey, that carries a people and cargo on the back. Donkey symbolizes peace and gentleness of a Messiah. Now, let's look at the uh, verse 37 and 38. See, it's the climax of a Jesus' triumphal procession today and the peak of the thrills of the people. Verse 37 said, When he came near the place where the road goes down, Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the, all the miracles they have seen. Let me explain why disciples were th so thrilled at this particular, you know, juncture in their, you know, uh, journey. You know, up to now, they are walking uphill about 17 miles from Jericho all the way to Jerusalem. It was a rugged hike ascending 3,500 feet. Have you hiked 17 miles? No? It's an incredibly long hike. And finally, they reached the peak of Mount Olive. And from there, they could see Jerusalem Temple Mount and the whole city of David with a couple of miles in the panoramic view. 
So I've been to Mount Olives. So I know what they mean, you know, what this is about. It's a breathtaking. When you see Temple of Jerusalem from the Mount Olive, you, you, you feel so emotional. So if you are the pilgrims to Jerusalem like disciples, you know, you'll be happy to see your glorious destination and also easy downhill, wouldn't you? From here on, the walking is easy. That's when they spontaneously exploded into praises. They sang loud voices, Luke says, literally megaphones. In Greek text, they're megaphones. And then they sang a line from the Hallel Psalm, and the, you know, which said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they even sang a praise of angels at the birth of Jesus that, that they record in the Luke chapter 2, the peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They sang peace in heaven, meaning not kind of a false peace promised and never delivered by Romans or Pax Romana, but truly heavenly peace promised by God and provided by the gift of His Son. So, what gave them uh, such a thrill? They also talking about all the miracles they have seen. The Greek word for miracles is a dunamis, from which we have English word dynamic or dynamite. That simply means powerful works. They are talking about Jesus' powerful work. They praise God for Jesus because they believe that Jesus was a powerful king who was about to usher God's heavenly peace on earth. Now, what's wrong about the thrills of our disciples? I want us to know that Jesus is not against us having thrills. He has nothing against the thrills. Jesus is actually more thrilling than anyone. And this grace is more thrilling than anything that I know of. What Jesus is against here, listen to me, is the thrills without the truth. Thrills without the truth or false thrill. Disciples were thrilled about Jesus' power, but their understanding about Jesus' power was a very human, earthly, circumstantial, rather than divine and heavenly and internal. They simply assumed that Jesus would use his power to destroy and drive out Romans and all those Jewish traitors from Israel. Their utter desire for freedom, desperate freedom, their desperate desire for freedom or liberation, political liberation, created a natural faith but religious fanaticism. Which is, religious fanaticism is always subjective, utilitarian, and at the end, short-lived. How about us? Do we really understand the true power of Jesus? Reinhold Niebuhr, I mentioned the name Reinhold Niebuhr a few times. He wrote a classical book, still very relevant book, Moral Man in Immoral Society. He said this, the tendency to claim God as an ally for our partisan values and ends is a source of all religious fanaticism. Did you know during civil war, both South Christians in South and North, they claim that God is on their side? And one time somebody asked President Lincoln, 
which, which one is true? And the, you know what Lincoln says? The more important question than whether God is in our side or whatever side is whether I'm in God's side, on God's side or not. That is more important. Reinhold Niebuhr also said the ultimate evil is done not so much by evil people, but by good people who do not know themselves and who do not probe deeply. You know, I want you to understand something here. Notice something here, which has been so prevalent and persistent last 100 years of world history, including our own history. Last 100 years, the world has been worshipping idolatry or idol called nationalism. Nationalism. German Lutherans endorsed Hitler and Nazis. Many American Pentecostal and the conservative pastors, they prophesied and preached for the re-election of Donald Trump as a divine re-election, ordination. The head of a Russian Orthodox Church blessed and still blesses Putin, a war criminal, as a patriotic defender. In the name of a nationalism and racial pride, people, including Christians, became blind to the power. And definitely Satan knows how to reduce, seduce us with the lure of a power. And Satan masquerades himself as an angel of a light. We are so gullible to easy power, easy solution. But what we need is a real power. That is the power of Jesus Christ. What is the power of Jesus Christ? Do you know power of Jesus Christ? You know, during this week, on our day, during, uh, you know, we meditated in Romans chapter 8. I was so, I don't know about you, I was so tired because I was doing every day, daily breaths every day. But uh, I was so blessed at the same time. I was pumped up. I was seriously pumped up. By Friday, when it came to the conclusion of a conclusion, the Romans 8.36, in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him, through Christ, who loved us. I feel like uh, I should preach this again on Sunday. Why do I prepare a sermon? Forget about the look serious. This is it. This is everything. God's love in Christ makes us more powerful than conquerors. Why did Paul compare us to the conquerors? Do you know why? You know what he's saying? Romans. And the new Romans in 21st century called the Americans. We adore our conquerors. We love our conquerors. During the wartime, I mean during any time conflict, the president, the wartime president, received a double, triple trust from the people. Because we love conquerors. We want our country to conquer, not to be defeated, right? What thrilled Jesus Christ, what thrilled Apostle Paul was the love of Christ that conquers sinners' heart and make us become children of God. He was so thrilled about that. And then, you know, more than conquer, you know what that means? We are more important and we are more powerful than conquerors through love of Jesus Christ. Amen? That love makes us not destroy people, but love people, serve people, transform people. 
You know, I didn't say here while he was here, but just a few weeks ago, for about six weeks, we had a, a newcomer, Hiroya, from you know, Emory University. He's a Japanese foreign student, uh, grad student, doing a six weeks uh, clinical uh, rotation as a physical therapist in Dallas. And somebody in our house church, Petare House Church, knew him and brought him to the house church. And once the house church found that he never been to the church in, in his life, is a brand new, fresh, fresh, you know, uh, uh, soul. And we call it BIP. You know what that house church decided to do? Once they found out that he lives in the Richardson, but his work is South Dallas. So they decided to give him a ride. Early in the morning, at least from his house to the dart station, or some of them gave him actually ride, to, you know, from his house to all the way to, you know, uh, Dallas, South Dallas. I also signed up. I'm not bragging. Because somebody gave me uh, a false information that actually work is near the uh, uh, love field. Found that it's not love field. Because once I take him and he said, oh, we have the map taking a 67. When was the last time I was driving 67? That's when I was going to Baylor. And that is a Waco. So, seriously. But guess what? That's what love of Christ does for us. And leads us. You know, a week before he left, you know what uh, Hiroya said? He's been, re I mean, they bought him uh, uh, the Japanese-English Bible. He began to reading the Bible, Gospel of John. And also, he tried to pray even. He started his journey toward God. How is that possible? Just like a Paul serving Romans who conquered Israel with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the power of God that we have. Amen? We don't conquer the world with a great theology. You know, even the theology matter. I'm a theologian, so don't tell me, you know, it's not, impo it's not, in it's not important. But what really transformed the world is the love of Christ that overflows in our heart. Amen? So unfortunately, disciples of Christ, they miss their love of Christ. They called Jesus their king, followed him, but for their own agenda, not for the king's agenda. That's why their thrill is without truth, and it is a false thrill, and that makes Jesus sad. Now, let's look at the other reaction to Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem. If a crowd of disciples was crazy about Jesus on one hand, on the other hand, they were critical Pharisees. Look at the verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I'll tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Why did the Pharisees tell Jesus to hush his, his people? Their objection actually represents the sentiment of the citizens of Jerusalem. And here we need to make an important fact check. You know, those are people who are fanatical about Jesus were not Jerusalemite or people of Jerusalem. According to Matthew 21.10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the entire city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. That means when 
Jesus entered the Jerusalem, citizens of Jerusalem were not excited about him. They are bothered by him. And uh, often we think the crowd here, they include a crowd crazy about Jesus, including the citizens of Jerusalem. And then later, you know, when they saw Jesus arrested helplessly or powerlessly, they changed their mind. You know, this fickle, coward crowd was not a Jerusalemite, but actually, according to verse 37, whole crowd of disciples, pretty much Galilean Jews. Jerusalemite have seen too many messianic pretenders and crusaders in their city since Judas Maccabees, a.k.a. Judas the Hammer, in the second century before Christ. So every messianic candidate made their city, the Jerusalem, a bloody battlefield. So, you know, by this time, Jerusalemite, they have what I call it messianic fatigue or PTSD about the Messiah. Some Pharisees sensed the same political danger and tried to pre prevent another bloodbath by Romans. Because by then, actually, Roman governor Pilate and the legions of a Roman you know, uh, armies are already you know, stationed and they're, looking, you know, big, you know, they're ready to uh, suppress any kind of a riot on the Passover. And the, what is a Passover? They, they Israel was liberated from Egypt. Another superpower oppressed them. So Romans were very, very tense about this. So Pharisees said, this is a very, this is a dangerous area. It's like, a, you know, full of, a, a, what is a gasoline? Don't smoke kind of thing. Jesus, your disciples can start something, un, you know, unnecessary, you know. You know. Rebuke them. Keep them quiet. Now, the bigger and the deeper question is, what then did these Pharisees believe about Jesus? Then what did they believe about Jesus? Why they were with Jesus? If they did not join crazy, happy crowd of Jesus' disciples, what were they doing? They were skeptical at best and definitely antagonistic toward Jesus because Jesus was a hillbilly rabbi from Nazareth and uh, his disciples were very annoying nobodies. You know, later, Pharisees shared the sentiment of a Caiaphas, the high priest, according to John 11, that it's a better one man to die for the whole people than the whole nation perishes. So what Pharisees are doing, they are playing safe. They are playing safe here. They are playing safe. They were not desperate for, about their life, nor crazy about Jesus like the disciples of Jesus. Why? Pharisees thought, they, as long as they have a Torah, the law of Moses, they will be fine. They actually had no need of a Messiah, especially one who called them to repent, like Jesus. They, don't like, they didn't like Jesus because Jesus exposed their hypocrisy, and they really would not give them a respect that others gave. Some Pharisees might be sympathetic to Jesus, like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, but definitely Pharisees of all, they are not urgent or crazy about Jesus, for they thought they are safe with the law. And the law made them very respectable and reputable. You know, these Pharisees remind me 
about what Martin Luther King Jr. said in the Birmingham jail, city jail. You know, when Martin Luther was arrested and thrown into Birmingham city jail during the civil rights movement, this is what he said. The African-Americans' great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not white citizen counselor, a, a counselor. This is, is a network of uh, white supremacists or a Ku, Ku, Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is uh, more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of a justice. Pharisees represent negative peace and the absence of tension, neglecting actual positive peace and the presence of justice. They are more devoted to order than to justice. They are more concerned with the safety than the truth. And listen to me carefully. I see many Christians in this same more safe mode of spirituality of the Pharisees. Like the Pharisees, they say, I'm religious enough. I pay enough due to God. I don't want to get too involved. I'm pretty content with my life. I'm happy with my basic membership with Christianity. I don't have to sign up the executive membership of the church. My executive membership with Costco is more than enough. And then whenever Pastor Paul talks about, you know, come and join the monthly praise and prayer night, you know, people wonder, why in the world are Pastor Nick? Don't I pray every morning? Don't I praise God every week? We have this kind of playing safe mentality in our mind. I'm not crazy about the Francis, uh, Francis Chen, like some of you, but I recommend his book, Crazy Love for Devotional. It's a great, it's a good book. There he made a very relevant point. He said, since or if God is real, Paul and martyrs should be envied more than old people. Their suffering was worth it. If we allow ourselves to, be, to live recklessly for him, then we too will see his glory. We will see him do the impossible. Christians today like to play safe. We want to put ourselves in a situation where we are safe, even if or as if there is no God. But if we truly desire to please God, we cannot live that way. We have to do things that cost us during our life on earth and will be more than worth it in eternity. So, Francis Chen said, if we really believe that God is real, people that we should do, you know, our role model should be Paul and all the martyrs and missionaries, not those people who have everything of this world. If you really take God seriously and the Bible is the truth of God, who is the person that you envy most? Who do you want to be? That's what Francis Chen is saying. Instead, we're all playing safe. We're in the kind of uh, foot on the both sides. And then Francis Chen, in that book, he de described the spiritual lukewarm Christian life in the Christians in this way. Lukewarm people are continually concerned with the playing is safe. They are slaves to God of control. 
this focus on safe living keeps them from sacrificing and risking for God. Their life is all about safety and control. But let me tell you, when we have all the safety and control without God, actually, in my experience, I feel more insecure. You know when I feel most secure? When I give control to God and I make God responsible, then I feel most you know, secure because God is Almighty God. And who did not spare his own son for me? When I give a control to God, that's when I and you feel secure and safe. Once I read a very interesting poem about a cautious man who played too safe. And the poem goes like, There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked. He never tried. He never sang or prayed. And one day he passed away. His insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claim he never really died. You know, we have only one life to live. And this one life we have owes to Christ who gave his eternal life for us. You know, dear brothers and sisters, let us remember that our world is not served well by us playing it safe or small. We are children of God. We are gifted beyond the measure. According to Paul, we, we receive the seal and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the creator of the universe, and the one who subdued the chaos into cosmos. Let's take a chance to do something for someone that are different from us, or someone can pay you back. Let's go against the grain. Stand up for the people suffering of injustice, intolerance. You know, let's take a risk to meet someone different and take a risk to invest our life and our talent, our treasure on things that matter. I really pray that every house church on Friday or Saturday, we take risking relationship to go deeper and become more vulnerable and let the people really see we are naked in Christ's love. Now let me go to the final point. Let's see the tears of the king. And as I read the, uh, in the last uh, four verses, pay attention. What's the one word Jesus repeats the most? As he approached the Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day, what would you bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you, the children, within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's visitation to you. What is the one word repeated most here? It's you. You, you, 12 times. Jesus was a heartbroken. Jesus' heart was broken over our lack of repentance. Jesus mourned and lamented the city of Jerusalem, literally city of shalom, peace. It's about to become city of pain and destruction and distress because they rejected Christ. 
and they didn't repent. They rejected Christ as Messiah and his offer of true peace. And this was heartbreaking to Jesus. It's so painful to Jesus because Jesus loved them. And here Jesus is giving his life, and they are not taking it. And the consequences will be utterly terrifying and heartbreaking. You know, later, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote, who wrote the uh, 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 Jewish war in AD 70, the Jew, Roman general Titus, who actually ordered to destroy the city of Jerusalem, or the temple and everything, and then when he actually came later, saw the utter destruction, he was so dismayed. He fell on his knees and then prayed for God's forgiveness. That's how horribly Jerusalem was destroyed. So, question is, why does repentance matter? Listen to me. Because unrepentance is the greatest lost opportunity. Unrepentance is the greatest lost opportunity. Have you had some missed opportunities? Do you have a missed business opportunities? Investment opportunities. You know, your friend recommended us, you know, Tesla stock and you didn't buy. You know? You, did you have, did you, did you miss a relational opportunity? Do you have any lost opportunity that sometimes pauses your day or your moment, your thinking? Listen to me. Someone said, of all sad words or tongues or pen, the saddest things that people say is, it might have been. It might have been. People say at the end of life, the things that we will regret is that shot that we missed, but shot never taken. It's not a failure that we will regret. It is lack of trying, lack of trusting, playing safe. That is what we'll repent. Let us remember, during this Lent, we are just a one decision away from totally different life. I don't know where you are spiritual journey, you know, many of you, even though I pray. But whatever decision that God is placing in your heart, that is a God's way of inviting you and blessing you. You know, Jesus said today, if you only knew what brings you a peace, what brings you a peace? What brings peace to us? It's not circumstance. It's a Christ. And when we respond to Christ with obedience and the trust, Christ will truly establish us. I pray the remaining two weeks of Lent, let us not waste Christ's peace and grace, but walk with Christ to our Calvary, and there let us crucify our safe, plain spirituality and self-obsessed idolatry on the cross of Christ. Let's pray.